0: or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code Podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot.
1: My name is Michael and publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is Jeff Snyder. Jeff, it's been a while since we did one of these spaces, but introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved in markets?
2: And what are you doing currently? Yeah, I'm with the Eurodollar University. It's basically a podcast, but also research and membership subscription service, where we talk about the monetary system, um, what, it, what, what it is, how it's supposed to work, that kind of stuff macro money topics. Uh, that's our focus. My background is I was a portfolio manager for many years, but migrated into investment research, monetary research, economics, that type of thing, basically because there wasn't a whole lot of answers, especially after 2008, about what what, what actually went down and and what actually has happened since then. So I've been focused as an independent researcher on explaining exactly what goes on what the Eurodollar system is and why it actually matters. And that's that's really where I am now. We've got a podcast on YouTube, like I said, and a research subscription. Our website is eurodollar.university.
1: Okay, so you said uh, your focus is on how the monetary system is supposed to work. Uh, last I checked, safe collateral is supposed to be less volatile than that which you're leveraging against that safe collateral. And obviously what I'm talking about there is sovereign debt. I want to get your take on what's happened just more recently, post Fitch downgrade, because it does seem like we're in yet another Treasury bond market
2: crash. I don't know if I'd call it a bond market crash as much as a fluctuation, <laughs> because it's it's easy to look at these sell offs as some monstrous thing. And you're right there there isn't supposed to be this amount of for certainly daily volatility or even that much attention on government bonds but it's understandable why there is given what are supposed to be so many headwinds for the space for really everywhere. I mean, yesterday or last night was a perfect example in the Japanese government bond market where they had a 20 year bond auction that was relatively, relatively decently subscribed, but it tailed at the end there and it created a, a pretty substantial sell off. So there is a definite bond negative mood that is pervasive. But when you put it in the high in the wider context, I mean, You know, the 10-year U.S. Treasury, for example, is about where it was last October, despite the fact the Federal Reserve has done, what, you know, 400 basis points in rate hikes. We've got, you know, a quarter trillion in quantitative tightening rolled off the fence balance sheet just in U.S. Treasuries. Like you said, the Fitch downgrade. Janet Yellen is going crazy issuing Treasury debt, which they're going to continue to issue all over, you know, for the rest of the quarter, and it's probably the rest of the year, too. So I mean, there's there's any number of market headwinds. I actually take the opposite view here. It's amazing that yields aren't higher than they are now, and they and actually the market move has been somewhat orderly, especially since the the, the downgrade. And I think it's because there's a number of competing narratives and competing, you know, data views on what's going on in the in the wider system. And it's almost binary at this point because there's people, there's lots of people who are in the camp that inflation is secular. It's going to continue to come back. Rates are going to have to go even higher at the short end. Central bankers are going to have to continue to do what they're going to do. And then there's other people at the opposite end who say, no, I mean, look at what's going on in China, trade recession, the economic climate isn't all that great. Maybe there won't be a soft landing. A soft landing is a false narrative before the real hard landing hits. And it's understandable be, there would be so much volatility given the extreme nature of both sides. And it's there really is no clarity as far as, you know, we can't just say that all the data screams one or the other. There's enough there's enough competing signals where you can make both cases and make them plausibly.
1: Which goes back to how the monetary system is supposed to work. To your point, there are unquestionably a lot of competing signals. Uh, you know, if if you're saying that you're surprised that yields are not higher. I'm going to make the assumption that that also means you're surprised that credit spreads are not wider.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's another one. Why aren't credit spreads wider? And I think it's some of the credit spreads that are wider are the ones that we don't actually see much. We don't pay much attention to. I mean, I, I don't think there's any secret here that the biggest problem in the banking system and the credit system right now is is commercial real estate, which is not something that we, you know, it's almost like residential mortgage bonds were 15 years ago. I don't want to make that direct comparison, but in terms of information asymmetry, the lack of information on what's going on in that part of the credit market system we don't really we don't really see what the, some of the spreads are in some of the CMBS and CLOs that don't really trade all that much. It's an illiquid space to begin with, and so what we're left with is sort of hints and allegations and anecdotes that say, you know, CMBS spreads have in some places have widened way out, and most, you know, some of the stories that have come out have said that some of the bigger players that are trying to unload some of those of uh, some of those assets can't even find a bid anywhere. So it may be that, you know, corporate bond spreads, for example, there's not a whole lot of attention paid to those, at least not yet. It's it, it's more attention is paid to the more esoteric and shadow parts of the credit market system.
1: Yeah, and you've probably seen the same things I've seen, right? BXE filings have been increasing. Usually that's correlated to uh, corporate credit spreads because of default risk premiums. And that's not obviously showing itself just yet. What will it take for credit spreads to start acting a little bit more? Normal. I mean, the easy answer is well, once they're kind of in their in their refinancing rollover period, respectively across you know all these different issuances. But at, at what point is he, what's going what's going to take to cause some panic on the junk debt side?
2: I think it's clarity on the economy. I think once 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 it, once the soft landing narrative starts to go away, assuming that it does, realizing that maybe the economic circumstances are much much more significant, and that credit the credit environment overall becomes more like CMBS, for example, becomes more illiquid and harder to roll over and banks really start to tighten up across all of their lending products, not just banks either, but, you know, risk aversion in general terms, then people take a second look at some of the riskier corporate corporate names. But right now, I think most of the focus is elsewhere. And it's really, again, you know, if we do end up in a soft landing scenario where the economy avoids a recession entirely, Then as a portfolio manager, you don't want to be, you don't want to be missing out on what would be a rally. So there's, there's a reluctance to sell and there's an itch to buy. And I think you see the same thing in the stock market too. The two, the two are very much related where if we do hit that soft landing, you don't want to be the last one in the market because it'll be too late. And as long as the soft landing continues to be, I mean, as long as the data continues to be ambiguous and we can't say one way or the other, I think the, the balance of perception is it's better to be in the risk, these parts of the risk markets than it is to be out and be caught if the soft landing does happen, because then the rally, it'll just be too late to, you'll miss the rally.
1: Do you get a sense that central banks are nervous at all about the speed of the move? I hear you about when you say it's oh, maybe orderly. I somewhat pushed back on that just more recently, but. At what point do you think the central banks are getting nervous about the speed with which yields ro- rise? And that the reason I'm saying that is one of the reasons I myself argued back in early October that there was about to be a stock market melt up was that if bond yields were to have continued rising at the pace they were rising into October of last year, I jokingly said that meant mortgage rates would be like 20% in November, right? That it would just, it was, you'd have like a super spike at the, at the way that it was kind of behaving which you don't want to see, obviously, right? So I I think this is a question more of speed than anything else relative to level. At at what point do you think you'd start to see some some concerns?
2: Well, I think from the central bank perspective that they're okay with this. I mean, I don't know how high they have in mind, but they – they don't like the fact that yields have, or the yield curve has been inverted. They consider that easing financial conditions when obviously it's not it's reflecting the opposite. But from the central bank perspective, they will definitely tolerate higher yields. They'll definitely welcome higher yields because their focus is entirely on inflation risk or what they see as inflation risk. And if the market start, if long term yields start to rise, they'll welcome it. They'll say, yes, that's great. I don't think they have a line in the sand where they say, hey, you know, we can't go past this point, or I don't believe they have a, you know, they don't, not going to get out their protractor and just, and try to figure out what the angle is that they'll tolerate and how fast they get to some level. But as far as central banks are concerned, yeah, this, this is, this is not at all unwelcome. In fact, they, they would consider, I'm sure they do, they consider it to be exactly what they're hoping for.
1: Right. But wouldn't that, wouldn't that then have negative implications on, on the health of, banks, but you talk about then regional banks on steroids, you know, at that point, I would think.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the banking sector, as far as, again, from the official position, I think their position is that everything's fine. We went through a bit of a crisis there and came out with with seemingly no economic damage whatsoever. Everything seems to be hanging in. So the, the pain threshold from the official position is that much higher. Um, I think it's a false confidence, of, of course, but, you know, from as far as any kind of action on the part of the Federal Reserve or DDCB or anywhere else, I just don't see it because as far as they're concerned, they need to be more focused on inflation. And as rates rise, assuming they rise further, that's exactly what they're going to want to see. And they're going to welcome higher rates as, OK, now we're getting our act together. We're getting financial conditions to finally tighten all the way across the curve, which is what they want to see especially with the fact that they consider consumer prices to be really sticky and stubborn this year. So they're, they're going to welcome the move here in the bond market. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello listeners. Michael Guyot here from lead lag live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the lead lag report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. So I tell you me, there's the- Talk about confusing signals at the start of the conversation, there's all kinds of, you know, uh, different takes on where inflation is now. So I'm looking at the thread and somebody noted that a friendly reminder, government bonds are still negative yielding if you measure inflation accurately. If you look at true inflation, right, it looks like from a goods perspective, you pretty much now have undone mo- most inflation. Shelter, obviously, is still a big part of it. But do you get a sense that inflation still pretty underreported here, that it's much higher than than we think and listen in fairness most people will always say that inflation higher than what's reported right some of it may be true some of it may not be but where are we now on in inflation relative to the negative yielding part of the arguments for bonds
2: yeah you'll never get a consensus on measuring consumer prices which is almost a fool's errand anyway i mean you might as well just average a phone book if people remember what phone books were yeah so i mean there's it's always difficult the concept of inflation and consumer price increase is always difficult anyway and you can always make cases. So we're, we're, really, we're really interested in just ballpark assessments. Are we even close here? And I think most of the data and evidence suggests that we are, that consumer price pressures have, and as you mentioned, Michael, and goods have abated. Looking at some of the forward indicators, especially producer prices, which are heavily deflationary around much of the rest of the world, which is where production is mostly taking place or actually not taking place, there is a very good relationship long run between producer prices and consumer prices. And you'll match up producer price indexes with consumer price indexes. And what you'll see is producer price indexes tend to lead. And if producer price indexes are already negative, that doesn't mean consumer prices will go negative, but it's, it's a, it's a very good indication that price pressures in the goods economy are, as you mentioned, we've, we've round tripped the supply shock. We're at the, we're at the, we're in the terminal phase, as far as services and some of the imputations like rent i mean they're going to take a while to come back down because rent is not a real number anyway the especially owners equivalent rent so as far as the cpi is concerned that'll continue to be a source of of positive numbers some of the other numbers you know the recent cpi uh services prices less shelter you look at that they've been disinflationary basically flat for 6 months running so there's not a whole lot of inflation pressures there X food energy, and shelter, the core core so-called, that rate was actually negative fractionally two, two months in a row. So it's slow, it's incremental, it's not at all at the pace people would like it like to see it, especially those at the Federal Reserve or the ECB. I mean, the, the consumer prices in Europe are far stickier than they are here, and that's probably a product of the currency translation, the fact that the dollar's up and the euro is down. In in general over the last couple of years, even though the euro has rebounded this year. So even though consumer prices are sticky, and that's really what central banks are focused on, the more forward-looking stuff, especially production and trade numbers, suggests that we're that's where the real weakness is coming from. And that weakness is showing up in deflate disinflationary consumer prices, deflationary producer prices, and that's all leading us toward. Well, it wouldn't necessarily be the soft landing. So if you're looking at the case for disinflation as the the start of the deflationary recession or at least in that window, and so I think that's what forms the the basis of the low yield camp is that we can see there's weakness and material weakness all around the world, including in consumer and producer prices that would that would definitely argue against the soft landing soft landing narrative
1: since you mentioned. The euro and currency translation as it relates to inflation. And you alluded to what happened with the Japanese bond auction. I want to get your thoughts on inflation in Japan. Now, there, I think, are two camps here. One is that they've been wanting inflation for the longest time and all this is welcome. But the other part of this is if I'd argue if oil keeps on rising and the yen keeps on falling, that makes oil denominated yen surge even more. Wage inflation in Japan won't keep up with that, and then it, that might force the BOJ to really intervene aggressively, which might spur all kinds of reversals of the carry trade and, as I call it, is kind of the Mothra, not the butterfly effect. Where are we with Japan? Because it seems like this is sort of the the sleeper to focus on when it comes to inflationary pressure and the interaction of monetary policy.
2: Well, that was one of the biggest problems the Japanese had back in 2021. I mean, there's, you know, once the yen started to fall and oil prices were rising, they caught the Japanese economy in sort of a squeeze here in the vice, and they really have struggled to get out of it. Some of the recent statistics really point that, point that out and emphasize it. The GDP report from just this week for the second quarter, GDP was stellar. It was up at a 6% annual rate, but when you look at the internals, it was all just export accounting. Imports crashed at almost a 20% annual rate. That's not a good sign for any economy. And uh, consumer and household spending was negative, almost a 2% annual rate in the quarter. Business investment was flat. So I think you're right. Oil prices go up and the yen goes down. That only creates more negative pressures for the Japanese economy, which is actually struggling despite what the headline GDP is. But again, it just goes back to what we are saying before. That if you want to pick out evidence for your particular position, you think inflation is stubborn, it's going to be a big problem in Japan. You've got any number of statistics that suggest that. Whereas you look at it the other way and say, well, you know, Jap- I just, you know, J- Japanese just reported their trade numbers for the month of July, and they were pretty bad. You know, exports contracted nominally for the first time in a couple of years. So Japan, in addition to all of these other problems, is going to have the global trade recession now bearing down on the economy, too. So where there's going to be no support from the external side, which makes Japan look a lot like China, which... China is probably the dirtiest of the dirty shirts in the global economy right now. Um, So I think what happens is the Bank of Japan, which they've come out and said repeatedly, we might tweak yield curve, yield yield curve control, but we're not going to we're no we're nowhere near close to raising rates. So some of the volatility in the JGB market is is sort of. I think it's 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 enforcing the idea that yield curve control is the first step on the way to rate hikes, which the Bank of Japan currently admits they don't want to do. So inferring that maybe there's more consumer price pressures ahead through oil and weaker yen that maybe forces the Bank of Japan to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with Japanese problems, of course which is the same thing around the rest of the world. I mean what is what are rate hikes going to do to stop oil prices? What are rate hikes going to do in a weakened economy to get the yen to go back up in the other direction? So I don't, I, I, I don't, there's not a whole lot of consistency here because there's so much uncertainty across the board. And it's really, you get into a situation where everything's almost binary at this point. It goes one way or the other. And there's really not a whole lot of in between, which going back to the original premise here, explains so much of the volatility. It's hard to put your finger on something and say, yes, this is exactly what, how this thing is going to play out.
1: No, no, no disagreements on that. And I, I, I... From, from my vantage point, just going back to the point about everything sort of conflicting signals and things are desynced, it, 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 even when you look at the stock market, it's like two different stock markets, right? Small caps this year are like the emerging markets of the last decade, right, in terms of how they're so disconnected from large caps. In my view, from a market perspective, there's only a way that re- one way that resolves because divergences tend to resolve in tail events. Now, I could be wrong on that. But that's sort of at least my, my more immediate concern and what I keep on screaming about as far as the credit event. Now, you mentioned China. And I've made this point too that for all we know, maybe China ends up being sort of the source of a real problem, not a conspiracy theorist, but you know it is curious to me that Biden came out you know a few days ago and said that it's a ticking time bomb, just as you know suddenly the headlines are just hammering how bad China's economy is. First of all, are, are the are the headlines overblown, or is China in as bad of a shape as as it's being made out to be?
2: Well, I mean, first, I mean, Michael, what you just said is absolutely correct. And I think that's the other side of the market. Why are rates, in my opinion, not going up as high or as high as maybe they should? And should's the wrong term here. I think there's a nervousness and anxiety and a legitimate one. That you're right, when the when the world does converge, it does converge in a tail event. We don't know exactly what the spark will be, But there's a number of sparks that we can look at. We talk about commercial real estate, which I think everybody knows is going to be a major problem. We don't know how big of a problem it is. We don't know exactly how that would play out, but we can we can reasonably see that commercial real estate in the United States is going to be an issue here. And so that would be one reason why, despite the soft landing, despite the ambiguity in economic statistics, you would be negative on the economy, you would be negative on a whole bunch of stuff, and you would be long in safe and liquid instruments. And China is exactly the same way. China could definitely be a global catalyst for a disorderly unwind because Chinese are, first of all, they're an incredibly important part of the global economy, they the biggest buyers of commodities. And so whole economies and whole countries further down the supply chain are, are really sweating what's going on in China right now. And no, I don't think the, chi- the headlines are overstating or overplaying or hyperbolic the case in China because uh, first of all, look at CNY. China's yuan continues to fall. It's almost yesterday. It was almost at the lowest level since January 2008, matching last fall's, you know, 730 to the dollar, despite the fact that the PBOC has been trying to fix it stronger. Chinese commercial banks are in the markets seemingly every day. They don't seem to have a whole lot of impact. So the markets, as far as, you know, the currency market, which is really the other side of U.S. dollar providers, are looking at China and thinking, yeah, there's a whole lot of tail risk here too. And it's not hard to see why. Because now, you know, we started out with a few developers and maybe they would miss some payments on their dollar bonds. We know what the real estate market is in China. It's a mess. The economy's not getting any better. And then it was some bigger firms, and they were not just missing payments. Now they're defaulting. They're forcing buy bondholders into into not of Hong Kong courts, into mainland courts to try to to try to forestall payments and debt obligations and everything else, and then we got shadow providers that are start we get to, you know hear stories about their missing payments too, and they're they're selling assets and they're and they're uh, they're experiencing runs on short term liquidity so all of these sort of systemic signals that you would say, "Oh, what's going on here that would, would make you really pay attention here they're all going off at the same time. And unlike the United States or say Japan, look at the Japanese economy, those economic statistics and what we know of the Chinese economy is unambiguous. The Chinese are in desperate trouble in the economy and everything else that goes on with it, the financial the financial noises, the illiquidity, systemic risk, they're only going to make it worse. So sitting back and looking at things from a very global perspective, it's easy to say, well, that's just China yes, it's a big economy. And if it if it really gets bad there, what does that mean to me? The U.S. labor market is absolutely booming and resilient. So what is a China blow up going to do to the U.S. labor market? And I think that what the markets are saying and what what you should what people should realize is that the global economy and the global system is far more intricately connected. It's globally synchronized. It's it's not just, hey, China's problem, too bad for China. If something really does get out of control in China, it's going to be a big problem for everyone else around the world, too, not just Japan and Korean's close close trading partners. It'll be an issue pretty much everywhere. Not to, not to mention the geopolitical consequences.
3: We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, How do you dish? Download how you dish on the Apple app store now.
1: Right. And, and, you know, when the, when the March regional bank dynamic was playing out, people were tweeting me saying, this is your credit event. And I said, no, I don't think this is it. I said, if, if there's going to be a credit event, it has to be something that the fed can't can't control. They can't necessarily preempt. So Play it out. Let's say, you know, there's some kind of ripple effect in terms of, you know, some kind of credit scenario, credit crisis in China that might be slow moving, but then suddenly become a bigger thing. Can we do anything in the U.S. to isolate ourselves or, you know, are we just going to have to go through the volatility and pain?
2: I I mean, that's where the Fed starts to invent its new tools, right? (laughs) That's what they do. Well
1: said, they invent new tools. That's exactly right.
2: Yeah, that's what they're going to have to do. I mean, we can all see what the next Fed tool we all know it's going to be. It's going to be commercial real estate, CMBS bond buying purchase program or whatever the, the acronym will be or the initialism will be. And so I've, how do you isolate the rest of the global economy? How do you ring fence the Chinese economy from everywhere else? I, there's really no way to do it because... The Japanese, for one, are intricately connected with Chinese in terms of uh, dollar providing activity. So Japan, in one sense, that's why the Japanese yen is you put the two charts together over the last two and a half, three years. They're they're the move in lockstep. So every risk for China is a risk for the Japanese yen and really the Japanese economy. Every risk on for China, like during the reopening phase late last year and early this year, you saw China's yuan rally. And, of course, Japanese yen did the same. So immediately that that takes out Japan. So China, China's already impacted Japan and Korea and much of Asia, which the spillover is not just in purely economic terms. We see it in financial terms, too. Let's look at India's rupee just hit a record low after being really the Reserve Bank of India had put a floor under the rupee for, what, 10 months now? And all of a sudden, the rupee gets to a record low, starts to fall below that floor. And India's economy is nothing like China or Japan or anywhere else in Asia, India's economy is actually doing really well. And yet they spill over. Potential fallout is reaching the Indian rupee for a variety of reasons. But suggesting that there are systemic risks here. And what do you, how do you stop those? Because it's, it's like the 2008 crisis. It's whack-a-mole. Every time the Fed tries to do something to vent a new program, to take, to put out a fire over here, it just spreads and moves to someplace else that they can never identify ahead of time because they don't really know the system all that well. And really, frankly, nobody does. It's that esoteric and complex. Uh, It's just... Once these things start going downhill, it's like the proverbial snowball. Once it picks up enough enough mass, it's just it's going to keep rolling no matter what you do what you do beyond it. And that's really why, looking at it from the other perspective, from Beijing's perspective, they're entirely focused on making sure the real estate problem, liquidity crisis for their developers doesn't snowball into some disorderly systemic crisis. And the question is whether or not they can be successful at that. And they're willing so far to tolerate and sacrifice economic growth and economic output and expansion and potential to maintain that orderly stability, or at least try to maintain that orderly stability, which is sort of like, you know, what's the old expression holding the wolf by the ears? Because the weaker the economy gets in China, the more likely we're going to have developer problems and shadow liquidity problems, too. And so it's they're really trying to thread a very fine needle between systemic financial risks and the problems and consequences for lack of economic growth, which the global trade recession is only making worse because the Chinese were kind of hoping they would get some of a rebound and boost this year from the external sector when it's been the exact opposite. So as far as a confluence of really awful risks that right now are not necessarily risks, they're actually playing out in, as you mentioned, slow motion effect. You know, it's 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 never a foregone conclusion. It's never inevitable. You can see why markets are treating China the way that they are. And they're starting to, you know, they're really not starting to, but they're really thinking about what happens if if this really does go further, not only will there be economic consequences as far as, you know, the Chinese economy, but what are the what are the potential potential pathways for a financial spillover beyond just, you know, a couple minor defaults and dollar bonds?
1: I keep seeing these headlines, Jeff, of you know, the Japanification of China, and I keep going back to, they keep talking about China on the path of Japanification. Meanwhile, it seems like the U.S. is on that, on the same trajectory and path, just given debt levels. What happens if, if we're in this kind of, you know, multi-decade period where China just languishes? I mean, I find it hard to believe that the U.S. economy and market can just diverge if you know, China goes the way of Japan.
2: Well, I mean, that's part of deglobalization, it, you know, I agree with you j the, the United States has been on the Japanification path, path since August 9th of 2007. So we're, you know, 16 years into it already, whether people realize it or not, that's that's been the case. And that's one of the reasons why interest rates have been so low for as long as they have. It has nothing to do with the Fed and quantitative easing. It's the fact that there's low economic growth. And the more we deglobalize, the more you know China has to take a step back and everything else. The worse that becomes for everyone else. Which I mean, historically speaking, we go through these periods of globalization, deglobalization, de-globalization are closely tied to monetary system effects and in conditions anyway. But I mean, from the Chinese perspective, they view this as we don't want to be Japan nineteen eighty nine. We can't. We don't have any choice here. So that's that's what's really informing Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for the new era. The most important part of that term, which is now a part of the Chinese Communist Party Constitution, is the new era and the new era, according to the Chinese is. It's no longer pre-2008. We can't count on a globalized economy that's everybody's growing and everybody's doing well. So what the Chinese are attempting to do is not go down the path that you just laid out. They realize if they don't do anything, then they are going to end up being Japan, where they're going to have lost decade after lost decade, realizing they also have terrible demographics and a lot of other negative factors to consider, too. So what the Chinese have said is we need to get through this transition period from where it was before 2008 to this robust future. And they've dedicated a number of resources, political efforts, economic efforts to create a fourth industrial revolution with Chinese characteristics under socialism, of course. So they, I mean, in big picture terms, they can see the exact same thing that you do and they're trying desperately to avoid that fate, which I don't think they're going to have any success with because you think about what they've done so far They spent how many years of trying to get the real estate bubble under control, and they've sacrificed how much economic output and expansion potential to do so. And what progress have they made? They're still in the same negative situation they were five, six years ago, with even less of an economy to support it. So trying to get to this magical new future where China invents all of these fourth fourth industrial revolution technologies that nobody has any idea what they would even look like, that's not just it's not just pie in the sky. It's basically science fiction. But the reason they're doing that is because they, again, Michael, they ex- they see exactly what you do. In absent, if they're not, if they don't do anything, then they end up being Japan, which is the absolute worst case for for the especially for the Chinese government. You know, stock buybacks certainly have their place. It's not like we should outlaw them, they're not necessarily the worst things in the world. But getting out of hand, I mean, it's part and parcel with the low economic growth, high liquidity fears environment where companies, instead of investing productively, choose instead to either use their own internal profit resources to buy back their shares, which is really nothing more than a a monetary redistribution. And it's redistribution in a most, in a very unproductive way, because instead of money and credit being channeled into the economy, as you're pointing out, which is what we would like to happen, successful companies building upon their successful by building more of their, their own company and hiring people, investing in the real economy to do so with stock buybacks you're just channeling much of those proceeds into an unproductive use which is you know at chasing asset prices which would be fine if the stock market was raising funds for new startups then it would be a productive redistribution because then you would have profits from a successful business that gets redistributed to the stock market that then goes to startup companies and innovations that are raising money through IPOs. And then it would just be, you know, another step in a productive chain. That's not really what happens here. Instead, what happens is stock prices go up, which kind of is sort of like a vortex, which causes other companies to do the same thing. And everybody's just throwing money at the stock market rather than the real economy It becomes like a casino. It's a distraction and it's unproductive. So the issue isn't necessarily the debt, it's the inefficiency in the economic system that causes GDP to lag behind. And so really, economic potential doesn't really support the amount of debt that's uh, that's raised either for productive or non productive uses.
1: Going back to China here, is there anything at all that can get animal spirits to pick back up when it comes to China? Yeah, everyone's been waiting for a while for some kind of massive stimulus. PVOC, you know, did a, it looks like a surprise move, but it's not really much recently. but. It just seems like they're they're really kind of stuck in terms of what they can do to try to revive activity in general.
2: Well, I mean, the PBOC, that's I think, you know, going back to one of the one of the reasons why there's so much volatility in interest rates here is there's also this expectation that the worse it gets for China, the more the Chinese are going to have to come to their senses, quote unquote. They're going to have to say. Okay. We, we want to, you know, we want to prioritize financial risk, but we really have more economic risk. Therefore, we're going to have to do what we used to do back in 2012 or 2009. We're going to announce this massive, monstrous fiscal spending program. The PBLC is going to lower interest rates by, you know, half a percent at a time and continue to do so until they need to. They're really going to try to put the massive Keynesian textbook back to use. And I think that's one of the things that you see in commodities here and there and short run situations where every time a bad number for Chinese economy comes out, commodities will pop and it'll be because, oh, now Beijing's going to come to a census and start to do a bunch of stimulus. I don't I think that's a low probability. I think the Chinese are desperately, deathly afraid of financial risks. They don't want to restart the Uh, The financial bubbles, the real estate bubble, it's already as, as big as it is, as big, as dangerous as it is. And as I said before, as little progress as they have made with it over however many years, they don't, they just don't think it's worth the risk. I mean, in choosing and prioritizing risk, they have shown tremendous patience and tremendous resolve to let the economy do what the economy is going to do so long as it doesn't get out of control and and, and really spiral into a real downside case. And so if that's what it takes to move Beijing into stimulus, by then it's already too late. But there is that there is definitely a a widespread I think it's pretty widespread belief that, you know, one of these days Beijing is going to wake up. You saw it when the PBOC started to fix the CNY, the, the central parity stronger back at the end of June. You saw a lot, of com- a lot of commodity prices pop, iron and steel, for example, because that was sort of everybody thought. Well, a lot of people thought that was the signal. Beijing is finally waking up and coming to its senses. So maybe this was just a start before, you know, the massive fiscal spending program gets rolled out. And instead, the government just keeps talking about supporting the economy with no specifics maybe some targeted bailouts here and there. It's just, it's one of those binary functions of, that goes along with everything else. The worse it gets for China's economy, but maybe, the, maybe that means it'll get better down the road. Which way do you pick? It's, it's really hard to tell. But as far as, I don't think there's any disagreement or ambiguity about how much trouble the Chinese economy is actually in. And I think there's even less ambiguity and disagreement about what that actually means for outside of China. There is definitely downside risk that that are shared outside the, the country.
1: One area we haven't touched on is uh Russia and rubles had some pretty wild movement as of late. I, I know that we probably have largely isolated ourselves from financial volatility when it comes to Russia and the rubles movement, but other countries may not have to the same extent, like China. What's going on with Russia kind of more recently here in terms of their rates, their currency, and How does any of that, if at all, impact these Asia dynamics?
2: Well, I think, you know, it's probably difficult to have any good idea what's going on in Russia. I mean, they stopped reporting economic statistics for a while. And now there's I think they're probably just making them up as they go. I mean, their priorities are elsewhere. But you look at some of the other numbers from some of their trading partners, for example, Chinese imports from Russia were actually down big in July, which I think accounts for a lot of the volatility in rubles and, and everything else, because... If the Chinese are unable or unwilling to continue to support Russia in the way that they have over the last year and a half, that's big, big, big problems for the Russians. Same with India. India has been buying a ton, a ton of Russian energy oil and everything else. And up till now, they've been they've been able to get away with paying paying for it in rupees, which has caused a bottleneck for Russian producers because now they have a ton of rupees they can't use. And so there's been some pushback from Russian energy producers about not wanting to buy or not wanting to sell Russian energy to India using rupees. And the Indians are saying, well, then maybe we won't buy your stuff. And so the two biggest trading partners for Russia are suddenly balking at the, the terms that they had been operating under beforehand. And it's a pretty worst. I mean. There's no clarity on the Russian economy. There's no help from anywhere else. And I think that explains the volatility. You know, whether it's especially the Chinese side, are the Chinese playing some kind of political game here? Or is it just a reflection of the Chinese economic situation where they just don't have the capacity to import a bunch of Russian stuff like they had been? That's that's an open question. I think I think it's more the economic than not. But as far as Russia's position goes. Yeah, I mean it's it, they're in a re, they're really rough shape here and that's and I think that's what the ruble is reflecting. not that there's a whole lot of volume in rubles to begin with, but it's it's really just uh, as bad as things have been there, they can get worse. They can actually get a lot worse especially if India and China start rethinking all of their relationships. Uh, I, I'm really. I think there's a compelling argument. The reason China reopened last year and ditched its zero COVID policy was because the yuan got down to 730. I think that was. I don't think that was the only consideration, obviously, but I think that was the last straw. Um, I don't think it was coincidence that as soon as that happened, after the PBOC tried to intervene in the currency, got commercial banks to intervene in the currency, and it didn't seem to work. Just like now, all of a sudden. Not long after seven thirty, you started to hear rumors about the Xi Jinping and Beijing were changing their tune on on pandemic restrictions so, as far as how much the currency weakness plays in the uh, the the thinking of authorities on what they're gonna do, I think it's a huge part, and it may be uh the central bank doesn't want to go you know. They've said all along they don't really want to get involved. They don't want to make the situation worse. And they are keenly aware of how rate cuts would be perceived in in an environment where the currency is already near its, its low point from last year. So I agree with you. There's so many things that they're trying to consider but I think in the end, that's the, the point here is that the risks are just piled up, the negatives are just piled up all over the place. It's not really about Beijing as much as what is, what, what is, where's the financial gravity really pulling China here, and not how much, not how much, or what what the what the authorities are going to do about it. But I think it's beyond their control at this point. But there's no surprise; everybody knows that Taiwan is under threat, and that's that's the next step for the Chinese, and it has been for a long time. If you were Beijing and you did want to invade Taiwan, the last thing you would want is a worthless currency, because as you're being isolated from the rest of the world, uh, you got to be able to survive and keep the lights on at home. Otherwise, you have no prayer of anything. So, whether or not that's something they're considering, it we depends upon whether you think or how strong you you think their uh, their 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 desire is to invade Taiwan and and take things in that direction we can't deny that that's something they've considered because they've openly said so. And a, a, a wand translation that continues to fall against any other, you know, against the dollar anywhere else. That's, that's just going to make the Chinese economy even more of a problem. And I wonder if, you know, taking things in the other direction, that's the reason why they haven't already, because, If you're prioritizing risk, maybe that's just too much of a risk. I mean, I'm talking about terms of the economy, what you would do to the economy in a, you know, a weakened state. It's just there's there's no good scenario there. There's no good way to, you know, how do you control the currency at the same time? You're already having problems in real estate. I mean, just enormous systemic risks that you would just ignite. It would just be setting a match to a powder keg.
1: Yeah, Jeff, for those that want to track some of your thoughts and and follow you aside from X slash Twitter. Words you point to. You
2: can follow me on YouTube at Eurodollar University. I also have the website, Eurodollar.university, has all the information about all that stuff.
1: Simple as that. Everybody, please give a follow to Jeff and stay tuned. I'm doing another space in about 10 minutes talking about uh, what's going on in the cannabis space. So thank you, Jeff. Uh, we did this kind of last minute, but uh, you're a wealth of knowledge and I hope everybody uh, found this interesting and useful.
2: Thanks for having
3: me, Michael. I really you, enjoyed it. Cheers, everybody. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don’t forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.